I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are making life better. This week, Arma Kukate, CEO of Plenty, a unicorn company that's raised almost a billion dollars so that they can grow clean produce anywhere around the world year round. Arma, welcome to Green Sense. Robert, thank you for having me. Great to see you. Well, we first met at the Bayer Crop Science 10th Annual Ag Issues Forum. I think it was back in 2015. And it was focused on agricultural trends. Can you believe that that was only seven years ago? How much have we both learned? <laughs> it, it's it's amazing how much has happened in that time frame. And, and in fact, really, in even the last couple of years during COVID, when we all I think had many concerns about what would happen to running, you know, startup and investment companies. And yet, you know, we've we've really enjoyed, frankly, something of a, an amazing period of growth for agri and food tech companies over that period. And for me, I can't believe how many mistakes I made and how much of a learning process this has been. I thought it was so easy when I first started. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you, you definitely learn more from your um, hardships than you do from your successes. I think that's you truly, true. you truly do. Well, that event really touched me. It was very unique. It had 30 speakers and the audience included, uh, I think it was about 300 media outlets. And at that time, you know, the social media was still very new and the audience was posting real-time conference news on social media. And they had just a wonderful lineup of speakers. Uh, many of those we've had on the show. Uh, and I was probably the least qualified speaker there. Uh, some that we've had on the show that I really uh, developed some friendships with were Michael Rogers. He's the resident practical futurist for the New York Times. I don't know if you remember Michael. He's, he's great. The guy who touched me most was Jason Brown. He won a Super Bowl with the Rams. He walked away being the highest paid NFL center in the league. And he became a YouTube trained sweet potato farmer. And he gave half his crop away to feed the hungry. I mean, guys, heart of gold. And then May Carol Jamison, she was the first black NASA woman astronaut. And she had a great takeaway that stuck with me is that if you want to be efficient, measure your time in seconds and you'll be more productive. So uh, that was fantastic. And you and I, we met uh, on a fireside chat that was moderated by CNN journalist Frank Snesno. And uh, at the event, Bayer Crop Science announced that it had chosen several investment firms to place $50 million to invest in new ag technology. And your company, Finister Ventures, was one of those investment companies selected by Bayer Crop Science. So I'm happy to finally have you on the show because <laughs> most of those others uh, had been on. And I, I want you to tell your story from Island Paradise in New Zealand to Ag Tech VC to CEO of Planet. Um, our listeners want to hear your perspective, both as a pioneer in ACTAC investing, as a pioneer in vertical farming. So let's start out. What was it like to grow up in New Zealand? Well, whenever I speak to somebody, uh, and, and obviously I've been living here in the U.S. now for a good number of years, almost everyone says New Zealand's either one, if not the most favorite place I ever visited or it's on my bucket list. And it really is as beautiful as it looks like in video and in stills and photos it's um yeah, it's a fantastic country really uh, i think the physical beauty is part of it but the other part of it is it's five million people in a country the size of great britain you know you have a lot of room to move but it's also frankly really complex and diverse interesting community i'm i'm an indigenous new zealander i'm maori uh, hence my name um so you know those ties are deep in terms of uh, we call ourselves tangata whenua people of the land 
in New Zealand. Um, and also uh, we have a, an interesting kind of political dynamic there with um, the different tribal groups amongst Māori or iwi as we call them and the relationship with the government, with settlers and descendants of settlers, really trying to figure out and forge you know, a lasting and prosperous partnership in New Zealand, which I think is something that New Zealanders can be proud of. It's a work in progress. It's never perfected or finished. But, you know, there is a, there's certainly a sense, I think, of deep community in New Zealand. And that's, that's particularly strong uh, when you come back and look at rural communities and people in farming communities. Of, of course, most people on your, your um, show here will know that New Zealand is a, something of an agricultural powerhouse, um, you know, across dairy, forestry, horticulture, sheep and beef, you know, a lot of different aspects to growing down there that, um, that I guess uh, were part of my, my background growing up. As well so too. did you grow up on a farm? Yes, in farming community. Um, and with family, you know, many of our family members are um, also in rural communities. A number of them are farmers as well too. So, you know, it's not an uncommon thing, by the way, amongst uh, the sort of rural Māori community. They have strong ties back into land and land management. Um, you know, we, we grew up also with strong ties to a number of large farming enterprises that were tribally owned. Um, as well too, and, and that persist persist today. So the, the Māori economy is actually a pretty significant part of the New Zealand economy, and it's given given the you know what's happened to other indigenous cultures in other parts of the world. It's it's actually pretty remarkable that we've still maintained large private land ownership um, and you know legacy stewardship of those of those both fam, farming and natural resources down there. It's uh, it's one of the I think one of the the biggest success stories in sort of New Zealand's colonial history and past, and I guess how it's translated forward into the future. Well, I am a strong believer of competitive sports, and I think it shapes people and it teaches you many lifelong lessons. And you played rugby in college. Uh, what did you learn from that experience? What was your takeaway? Well, you know, playing rugby in New Zealand is a bit like breathing air. Everyone, <laughs> everybody does it to uh, to different levels of sophistication and capability. And look, you know, you, you one of the great things about growing up in New Zealand, by the way, is you, you know, at least I had the, the good, good luck and fortune to grow up with free, free and open access to the outdoors with great schools down there and with a culture that definitely thrived on playing together outdoors, whether it was with your family, your friends, or later on, you know, in, in structured team sports. Um, it's also probably fair to say rugby in New Zealand is sort of the joke is it's more like a religion, I think probably like Texas high school football maybe is <laughs> the analogy that I've heard over here. Um, but everybody in New Zealand is fanatical about rugby um, in shape or form or another. Uh, but I, I think one of the best things about New Zealand sporting mentality too is not to brag or pound your chest. You, know, you, won't, you won't see too many, even all black professional rugby players doing dance routines behind the line uh, after they've scored or bragging against. No, and by the way, nothing against that. that. That's part of your culture and how you enjoy playing the sport. But it's just the mindset in New Zealand is probably more modest in that regard. It's like uh, the, the most famous quote in rugby is, let you, let you do your talking on the field. Well, that's your big uh, takeaway. Takeaway, be modest and humble. Be, be modest, be humble, do your talking on the field and, um, by the way, if you hear someone chit-chatting at you and you're winning, just point at the scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that'll, that'll keep them quiet quickly. So, you know, going to college, living in an island paradise, how'd you get involved with the venture capital? 
Um, so I actually um, was, before that, was actually involved in governance and management of land and land and, and physical farm asset resources. So I was the chairman, CEO of a farming enterprise in New Zealand. Um, actually got curious about technology from that standpoint as it relates to agriculture, particularly around just understanding better the inputs of what happened on the farm uh, all the way through to figuring out how do we make, or particularly given our ownership base was Māori, that the um, the idea of long-term stewardship also entered in. So I kind of got interested in both technology from a productivity efficiency standpoint and just you know being curious about innovation, but I also was interested from an operating standpoint, how do you have a more sustainable long-term stewardship of land and land resources and quality of water, quality of soil, sort of all just fueled my interest for the space. And I had um, been making investments in our operating business into the use of technology. So we were among some of the first users of RFID, air tagging, for example, um, the use of uh, enterprise software to be able to track and trace what was going on within the farm, um, whether that be you know, soil productivity or whether that be animal health. Um, and it just became an area of, of high interest. And as I realized, you know, you could invest in technology to improve the actual physical assets you owned and farmed, or you could invest in technology itself and then therefore actually be active and part of every farm that technology got used on. So the idea of scalability of tech was one of the things that kind of drove my interest in, into venture capital. I also, um, I actually immigrated into the, uh, to the U.S., for a job, for a role here for a couple of years after I sold my, my um, consulting advisory and farming business. So I had an exit there and then decided it would be interesting to do work in the, in the space of investing in ag and food. Probably the biggest driver, by the way, for that for me was um, I had met um, a pretty remarkable individual, a guy called Jerry Calder um, through the World Biotech Industry Organization at International Conference. And he was one of the first really um, movers in agri-tech investing here. He was the founder of a company called Mycogen that um, became the basis for Dow Agrosciences, one of the first row crop mm. biotech companies based here in San Diego, actually. So Jerry and I stayed in contact. And when I decided to come to the US, he, he actually said, look, why don't we do something together in, in the space of investing in new tech? In fact, it was really even before there were any venture capital firms working in ag. This would be 2007. So really, you talked about 2015 being a long time ago. Well, this is way before that. And, um, and so we started uh, Finisterre really on the idea that this was an area where operators and farmers clearly were, were moving more and more towards using advanced and new technology, but there really weren't too many firms investing in the space or really bringing new technology forward. In fact, you know, for the, all the boom of, boom of tech and biotech and IT, for example, there was really almost no no uh, venture investment at the time going into ag and food. So it just seemed like a wide open space to do something. There was, as, as operators and practitioners in farming, we knew there was a huge need. Um, and it seemed like a really interesting white space to get into. Little did we know, right, when we think about where we are today. I mean, it seems remarkable here we are with, with literally in the last five years, like 60 billion plus having gone into Food and egg, food and egg ventures. Uh, Jerry and I used to joke. You know, we we knew three other people in the space, um, and like literally, there was you know a small handful of capital dollars going into it. This was before we forged you know, the relationship with Bayer, 
PepsiCo, Nutrient, and others who became ultimately investors in our fund. This was right back at the beginning. So, um, well, ag tech investing is about 10 years old, and you were way ahead of that curve. So, congratulations there. Um, and then you, you, have migrated on now to be ahead of another curve, and that's uh, controlled environment agriculture. And you became CEO of Plenty, a big change from running a VC firm. Uh, what what was the motivation to to make a, another career change? Yeah, well, it's sort of an I guess an extension in a way, maybe more than a change, because you know going all the way back to, to Jerry and I starting Finister together, and then you know uh, more recently you know partnering with Kirk Bellsby, Spencer Morn, who are the other partners at Finister today. Um, we built up, you know, pretty, I think, extensive portfolio of companies across ag and food, one of which was plenty, actually. So um, I'd been interested in indoor growing um, as, a, um, as a technology area, an area I thought of high promise all the way back in, gosh, 2011, 2012, when we first started looking at the sector. And we were one of the uh, co-lead investors in Plenty's Series A at Finisterre. So I um, was working closely there with Scott Brady from Innovation Endeavours, Eric Schmidt's fund, um, Bezos Expeditions, also part of that first round, um, a group called Data Collective, DCVC, that are pretty well known in the biotech, human pharma, food space, um, Matt Ocko, um, and uh, John Hamer, their group. So we, we had a really high quality group around, coalesced around plenty, which was co-founded by Nate Story, who's still the CSO, and Matt Barnard, who's still on the board of the company, who was the CEO at the time. And um, we're just interested really in the, the promise of a very different approach. Like their thesis and what attracted me was really rethinking on first principles how we go about growing indoors. Um, we have greenhouses. What's the next step that could really expand and scale uh, indoor growing fruit, vegetable, and produce production on a, on a more global basis. And I thought the company had a really visionary perspective on how to do it. Of course, at the time, it didn't have any assets. It had you know, a couple of containers that they were growing uh, you know, leafy greens inside on the Google campus. Um, but it was, I think, the vision for the company to really come up with transformative technology. That was what powered our interest. And you know, that was back in 2014. So, um, you know, that's, it's been quite the journey for that company to get to this point. And in the last year and a half or so, as the company started to think about commercial scaling, um, you know, the, the management team and the board felt we needed to think about, you know, bringing some different management skills in to really help the company with scaling. And at that time, you know, I'd offered to help from, on an interim basis while we did a search for a CEO. And I guess we did a search for a CEO and it ended up being me. <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> CEA, a controlled environment ag, is a hot sector. There's been billions of dollars of investment poured into companies, and they're getting stratospheric valuations. So I want to talk to you as a VC. Walk us through how companies with little revenue or earnings receive billion-dollar valuations. Yeah, so I think, you know, firstly, um, CEA is not a term I'm particularly fond of, to be quite honest, because it feels to me like a grab bag of many different things that could be covered from traditional greenhouses, which are indeed controlled environment, but they're also greenhouses, hardly a new idea. Uh, actually went to the very first one built in Amsterdam. It's like 170 years old. Um, actually, so, we learned that the first greenhouse was uh, from the Romans. There was a Roman if you really, <laughs> If you go all the way, yeah, but if you want to talk about modern era greenhouses, you know, or glass houses as they were, they're really yes. 
from the Victorian era, you know, yep. and partly fueled by floriculture and horticulture advances yep. in trading as well. And of course, the Netherlands have got a, an incredible history. Yes. In this area that persists to today with, you know, with many companies in that sector being major suppliers of indoor growing technology, including and in now all the way up to, of course, folks like Signify Stroke Phillips on the lighting front through to greenhouse you know, physical manufacturers in just about every widget you could think of. And of course, that's spread into other countries that are interested in and in critically involved in ag innovation like the United States, Israel, even New Zealand. You know, it's, it's got active companies in this space. So you go back and say, well, what's driving this? And one of the fundamentals is supply like or lack of supply lack of consistent supply seasonality um, and and frankly growing demand if you look at retail for produce fruit and vegetables you know around the edges of the store that are driving retail growth i mean you know you don't need to go to a walmart to buy paper towels buy them on walmart.com but you know if you want to get people inside your stores it's the fresh category that's driving the velocity, you know, frankly, of both revenue and store visits. So that that fact, I think, is has coalesced in another direction for indoor growing, which is, you know, the investment that's gone in around looking at new technology solutions where photosynthesis is being powered by artificial light, not by the sun, and where you can truly get control all the way through the plant's growth cycle in insulated buildings that can be built anywhere more or less, as long as there's some power and some water and built much closer to, say, distribution points. So we're not shipping the product as far. We're growing the product next to or very close to the consumers. That, that I think, that trend is being powered by investment that's interested in breakthrough technology, whether that's product quality, whether that's better unit economics, whether that's the ability to take product that can be geographically you know, scaled, not just here in the United States, but frankly on a global basis, because I think call it CEA, call it vertical farming or indoor grow, advanced indoor growing, this is a global trend, not just an American or US-based one. And it's bifurcating in my view. Um, yeah, I wrote a post on this just after the show that we we're at together where it's clear to me you have a cohort of companies that are very much clustered around greenhouse technology and how to make that bigger and better and frankly more economic and hopefully make better product. And then you have kind of a you know next generation set of technology companies that are looking to really rewrite the rules around both economics, product mix. I know you've been long involved in the space, Robert, so you know, preaching preaching to the choir here a little bit around all the different options there are for addressing this diverse market and, and the huge multi-multi-billion dollar global need that is being underserved. And you roll onto the top of this, of course, climate capital climate impact and and the reality that both retailers are concerned about surety of supply and where they're going to get their food from to feed consumers consumers are concerned about you know the quality of their food the sustainability of their food how local it is what the shelf life of it is what herbicides pesticides or otherwise or not were used in the production of the food so this is a big multi-dimensional very large market it's underserved, it's global, and there's the opportunity for technology to create breakthroughs in the way in which we produce our food. 
But Capital's but, typically not very patient, and and these technologies take a long runway uh, to to uh, exploit a market like this. So so yes. just help us again from a not so much from plenty, but just in general. Just in general, yeah. No, um, how, I think how do how do how do these valuations uh, get calculated? Yeah, look, I think when you you look at the companies that are truly looking to create breakthrough technologies. The calculus here is that they're going to have a long-term impact on really rewriting how supply and demand is met or, or, or calibrated from a standpoint of venture returns. There are just there are just as many companies though that are not seeking venture returns that are large, raising large amount of capital. Uh, we saw you know folks like App Harvest, folks like Gotham Greens, Bright Farms. Uh, and then, of course, local bounty, amongst many others. I could go through the whole list. I, I won't because there's many of them that are raising collectively billions of dollars as well, but to build greenhouse greenhouses, product, right. greenhouse production assets. And so the, the question isn't so much valuation versus total capital because those companies are really operating, in my opinion, again, um, they're not technology companies. They're operating businesses that are building large-scale production assets, and they're going to be judged on their ability to to return EBITDA based on an operating asset. Technology companies do, you're right, there's a level of patience required that may run out if the technology companies don't deliver on their promises, but they have the uh, perhaps advantage in some respects of being able to raise capital with say lower revenue rates to begin with, but with the argument that they're gonna produce either higher quality and or better economics and really redefine the category. So they're being judged on future future value that could be created. Not unlike if you want to look at you know, the biotech sector, um, where there are often quite long run rates to produce a new pharmaceutical, for example. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's very much like that. Finding investors that have that type of a mindset, more patient, more long-term capital. Um, you talk about technology companies, but oftentimes a lot of companies in this market are not clear what they are. They're part equipment manufacturer, they're part farm yes. design and builder, and they're far, yes. part operating companies. So uh, each of those different entities has a different return on investment, but but a lot of them are blended together. Speak to that. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I think that's in, in some respects, I think a function of maturing as an industry. Um, so I think you're seeing some companies put their hands up and say, we are technology companies, we're not farming enterprises uh, and we're going to make that bet and and therefore be very focused on producing replicable scalable technologies you want others that are taking an approach that is more vertically integrated so we're developing technology but we're also building farm assets um, in order to produce food um, whether that's for ourselves or for partners i think you could sort of look at plenty is making that type of bet. And there are a number of others who've done that as well. Um, you've got also companies that are doing point solutions or limited sets of solutions, either to improve the performance of vertical farms, in some cases, greenhouses as well. So I look at some of the sensing companies, for example, and data science companies that are looking to plug themselves. And there's also genetics companies, and we'll, I think we'll see more of those as well too so you could look at this and say the industry is confused i look at it and say the industry is maturing that's um, fair and, and and that's my next question is that uh indoor vertical farming has received 
just lots of media attention, and that's created a lot of hype. There's been a lot of criticism about vertical farms, which includes uh, large capital expenditures to build the farms, uh, expensive unit production costs, limited crop variety, uh, uh, evolving growing technology. As a, as a VC, put that hat on, uh, what do you like about CEA, uh, specifically vertical farming? Yeah, um, well, look, one, I think the, come back to addressable markets. I like the market dynamics. Um, I don't like climate change, but it's a reality. It's not coming, it's here, yeah. right? And so I think that you're already seeing uh, on one, set, one hand retailers and obviously plenty sort of partnerships that were announced with Walmart, but also with Driscoll's are kind of a reflection of the fact that, that large scale growers and retailers recognize you know that there's a need for uh, greater certainty of supply that's sort of one of the dimensions of building quite large physical assets which is you know plenty and a number of others are doing they've raised a lot of capital they're looking to build facilities that can really move the needle in terms of total production so it's not tens of thousands it's millions of kilograms of production per site in some case i think it'll probably end up being tens of millions um, of kgs in production to do that you've got to invest in building a scalable technology so that's you know just to acknowledge that piece of it but i think the other interesting thing here is is that this is happening at a point in time when a lot of intersecting technology curves are driving cost out so you know um, led lighting has been one that we've tracked for a long time right um, and continues to track down in terms of rising performance relative to cost kind of in a you know moore's law equivalent we're also seeing the, the increasing low cost of compute power. Um, you're seeing a move towards greater automation in response to real pressures in the labor market that are not new. Field growers have been, you know, understandably worried about and complaining about labor availability for a long time. This is not a new issue. And you're seeing robotics investment in the field take off as well too. I, you know, my good friends over at Western Growers as you, who you know, they've been doing a lot of work in the space for quite a few years to try and help their members become more efficient at, at frankly, everything from weeding to planting to harvesting post-harvest. So these technology investments that are going on in other fields are, are, I think, intersecting in a way that's very helpful for indoor growing or CEA, call it what you will, um, because we're able to cannibalize the cost curves of you know, effectively other industries to make for more affordable and more creative solutions within the space. So a follow-up question to that would be, you know, field farming has been around for thousands of years, greenhouses, maybe a century, maybe a little longer, and vertical farming, maybe a decade old on a commercial production basis. At the what most. do you think is yeah. the, you know, are people too impatient? Do they want too much of this, too, too much uh, productivity too quickly? What is the proper runway? To give this field to, to to get it to be stabilized of course people are impatient i mean i think we live in, <laughs> we live in a society now where you know instant gratification is too slow um you know I th which that's is, quotable <laughs> which is, it's not necessarily a good thing <laughs> uh, if you apply it to you know to uh, to childhood development and kids learning and so forth um putting aside food production for a second but now look I, I think the thing to think of well as i think about this wearing both hats as a venture investor and plenty as you, you pointed out it's raised close to a billion dollars at this point and has been going for more than seven years 
a lot of which has been spent investing in technology development. Um, so there's a, there's a cycle to building technology that is going to be infrastructural in nature. And when you look at the GDP flows alone for food production being north of $5 trillion with a T, dollars globally per annum, these are infrastructural businesses like, like energy. They're not typically fast moving. The speed at which we're seeing indoor growth innovation occur is actually unprecedented relative to infrastructure development in food and agriculture. Uh, and that's a good thing because, frankly, the bell is tolling now for us in climate change. Consumers are demanding greater transparency what is being done to our food, what's going on in the food, how's it being processed, where did it come from? Um, how sustainable is it? How local is it? What's the shelf? I mean, there's so many questions that, that frankly, the consumer is putting retailers and producers under pressure. And that's, you could look at that as a giant threat or a big opportunity. I think it's the latter. And so when we think about where we are in vertical farming, it's, it's very much an immature technology space. There's a handful of players that have raised really large amounts of money to try and crack the R&D questions sitting behind getting to scalable economics in particular. And, um, and the good news is, is that, you know, capital seems to be still continuing to flow in pretty unabated. So there's a lot of opportunities um, for new players to come in the space. It's not like, you know, it's all one and done. Of course, I'm biased. I think Plenty is a company with a good chance of being one of the winners. Um, and there's, there's just basic business execution you've got to do too. You've got to go build facilities, stop talking about it, go do it, prove that you can get on shelf, get on shelf profitably, prove consumers want the product. Those are the things we're really focused on doing over the next couple of years. And, um, and I think we'll see quite a shakeout in this sector from those who you know, want to talk about it and those who want to do it. Um, you know, I know you've been in the getting it done camp yourself, Robert, for a good long while here. So, you know, look, the way you really comment about also collaboration in the space, I think that's another thing we're seeing. We need to collaborate on educating the consumer about why indoor growing offers them more alternatives and choices that are good for them. Um, frankly, you know, why the sector deserves an opportunity to grow, grow into something really meaningful and sizable. And technology is going to be a key part of that, but not the only part. Well, one of your facilities is in Compton, California. Uh, we'll talk about plenty now. It's a disadvantaged community. What was behind the decision to locate there and how's the project going? Yeah, look, um, Compton is actually pretty strategically located, you know, partway between the port and the downtown area and clustered around a lot of distribution. So it actually does have just some actual business advantages in that way. Um, LA is one of the great food cities in America, if not in the world. You know, so from a standpoint of launching um, new products that will be appreciated by a wide range of customers. It's great from that standpoint, given the scale, sheer scale of California, but LA in particular. Um, you touch on, you know, on Compton status as a community. No one's bought a high-tech uh, job into that community in a long time, if ever. And so we were delighted and, and really gratified to be welcomed by the mayor, by the city, say, look, yes, bring these jobs here. We've got kids, we've got people who want these jobs. And, and by the way, bringing something which isn't just high tech, but makes food, Compton's got a proud history as a farming community before its urbanization, it actually continues to have a strong 
gardening and horticultural culture there. Um, you know, some of the best best backyard gardens in Los Angeles there. So there are a lot of things actually around around the support we got from the community that made a difference to plenty choosing to go to Compton and a choice that's been well vindicated by the ongoing support from the community. Um, and then lastly, I just say that, you know, as a as a urban-based farm, um, it is, you know, something for us also of a showcase. It's in LA, 25 minutes from the airport. We've actually built mezzanine viewing platforms in the farm too, so we can have everybody from school kids to potential investors and partners come into the farm and see it operational once it's up and running later this year. Um, so yeah, a lot of cool things to like about it, um, but there's no question, uh, building building a, a facility of that scale in an urban area comes with a, with a lot of challenges as well too, and so not been easy. What crops are you growing? Um, this is a purely leafy greens farm, so we're going to have about a dozen um, different SKUs on launch. Um, one of the things we're super excited about is that we've actually mastered growing um, baby spinach. That's a challenge in indoor vertical farms. It's a challenging in, in verticals, yep. Um, we're getting amazing quality um, from the uh, from the spinach. We're, we're going to continue to sell our kale, arugula, leafy, leafy green blends, um, and we'll, we'll have a few new products up our sleeve as well too on launch. One of the challenges in operating a vertical farm is balancing what the buyer wants, lots of SKUs, versus production, keeping it simple, growing a few crops in large volumes. How do you do that? Yeah, vertical. Um, so Plenty's architecture, I think, you know, there's been quite a bit of social media and sort of video and stuff out there. But so people might, if they take a, take a look online and pick some of the YouTube videos, you'll see that the, the system is actually vertical, is vertical. So we're growing in vertically oriented towers that are on a moving carriageway. Um, so as the plants grow, we're able to expand, or we call it index those plants to maximize you know, efficiency of growth. One of the other nice things about the facility though, is that we have distinct or separate growing rooms. So uh, these are not like stacked trays out in an open space. Um, each room has got a controlled environment specific to the crops being grown in that room. Um, yeah, monocrop so, grow rooms are the way to go. <laughs> so you could dial in the temperature, you could dial in the nutrients. Exactly. So, you know, so day length, everything from day length to specific climatic to nutrient load is dialed in at the plant plant level. And um, But also we've identified crops that grow well together and ones that don't. So we're actually not strictly monocropped. Um, we actually do have uh, varieties that actually are um, capable of growing in a way that doesn't impact the growth of the other plant negatively. Um, so between that and also, you know, it's it's quite a large facility in terms of capacity. So we're able to, you know, stagger production so that we have continuous product flow coming out of those rooms. And, you know, every time the, the room and tower is complete being harvested, we can replant with uh, whatever new varieties we want based on the, the rolling forecasts we're getting from our, from, our, um, from our customers. So it gives us a lot of flexibility to grow continuously. So another paradox is how do you balance uh, a large scale farm that gives you the economy of scale and lower production costs with multiple small farms close to the consumer? Uh, when you have a big farm, now you've got more transportation because you have a lot of product to move. So how do, how do you balance that? Yeah. I, 
We think it's that's solvable. Like our plan is to um, locate farms or where we have multiple farm crops, we call them campuses. So um, today Compton's leafy greens, but we'll in the future build farms that are um, multi-crop. So our tower system is capable of growing fruiting crops and greens. So um, that gives us the ability to get that economy of scale across more than one crop type. We're not just building a bootload of leafy greens or herbs, but we'll be bringing strawberries through our partnership with Driscoll's, tomatoes, and then other crops in the future. Yeah, I think we talked about this, Robert, but plenty. one of the other things Plenty has done that makes it a technology company is we have a large plant science team screening as well as breeding new varieties specific for our indoor and specific to our indoor growing architecture. So um, the thought here is that, you know, we'll build future farm campuses that are actually um, within a day's driving range of distribution centers and our customers. So we won't typically be looking to, to ship product more than a day. Yeah. So that, that plays so right into the, the benefit of a vertical farm that's close to the consumer. Correct. And, and it's not sort of um, climate dependent like greenhouses on where you can locate them. So, so one of the challenges with leafy greens and vegetables in general, general other than a green giant or dole, uh, not a lot of product is branded out there. So the consumer really doesn't <laughs> seem to care when they buy produce. Uh, what is Plenty's plan to brand produce and get yourself known both for your sustainability, your unique growing yeah. technology, and get get some brand loyalty from the customer. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a question that sort of faces produce in general. But if you think about it, and you know, I know you have, there's good reasons why it's been difficult to brand. I mean, one of the things is consistent availability and at consistent quality. The field doesn't provide that. The field, by definition, is seasonal. So if you want consistency you end up often shipping product from other parts of the world in a sort of follow the follow the sun seasonal strategy which a lot of the berry pit fruit uh, citrus banana players have done just to name a handful that have built brands you mentioned doll chiquita would be another in that space where they've been able to, to get some level of consistency. And, and then you also have, you know, our, our friends at Driscoll's, I think have done a mighty job of producing very high quality berries, berries. on a consistent basis. Also by going all the way back through to genetics. It's one of the reasons we partnered with them is that they've got an incredible genetics library. And of course, look, they've been doing this for close to a century. There's a lot of know-how on how to um, get product to the consumer in a way that the consumer appreciates and will pay for. So, yeah, look, you know, I, I almost in a way, just the risk of sounding like repetitive, come back to my comment about maturity of the sector and how do you mature? It's not just on technology, but on thinking through the business practices and branding. I, I personally agree there's lots of opportunity. There's lots of white space for branding. Um, when you think about the value of the produce aisle to the consumer and why the consumer even comes to the store, it's not that brands aren't important for that category. It's that... The, the attributes that underpin a band, brand have often not been available or they haven't been pursued by the growers. So, you know, when you, when you have a category that's a commodity, of course, it's not branded. Well, in my opinion, most vertical farms fail because they don't have good business models. It's, uh, that's what I see over and over again. And, and yes. that's what differentiates them. So 
Arma, I could talk to you all day long. Oh, I know. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we're going to have to bring this to an end. But I've got one last question. Uh, Plenty recently received an investment from Walmart of $400 million. Why would Walmart want to invest into a new vertical farm uh, startup company? Yeah, I, well, to be clear, it wasn't just Walmart who invested. They were part of a consortium that invested. Uh, but we did. We did, as you note, uh, we just closed a very large Series E round. Walmart was one of the key investors and also uh, entered into a strategic partnership with us. Um, I mean, I think what I can say is, one, from our viewpoint, Walmart um, working with us is, I think, a, a pretty clear indication that this is a category, indoor growing produce, that has the potential to be a very, very large business. Um, Walmart's obviously the, the world's largest grocer and retailer um, and has sort of the dominant market share here in North America. And they're also known as, you know, everyday low prices selling to the mass market. So for us and for them, you know, the aspiration is to be able to bring uh, a new category of high quality produce to as many consumers as possible and with, uh, with a wide assortment of products, not just leafy greens, but as I mentioned before, berries and other fruiting crops, tomatoes, and, and we'll see what else comes next. I mean, we have a R&D pipeline ability to bring more crops onto our platform. So I, I guess not to pound our chest too much here, try and stay with that theme of modesty. I, I think partly that we offered some differences in our technology, but also in our, think, our thinking about the business. So um, we're gonna be building farms and operating those in partnership with Walmart with Driscoll's, with other retailers, we hope in the future, but Walmart's kind of our primary partner to, to launch this new model, this new business model of building farms and operating them in conjunction with them as partners. And uh, look, there's a lot of great companies in this space. I think, you know, they did their diligence and decided that they'd work with us and we're very fortunate. Well, I'll tell you what, if you don't mind, I'd like to have you back maybe in another six months or a year. We'll look at the scoreboard and uh, see how you're doing. And, yeah, that's uh, the only way to do it, Robert. Yeah, that I, sounds great. Thanks so much. And, yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I know you've been very busy. Uh, congratulations on all your success, both on the VC front and here at Plenty. And thank you for joining us on GreenSense. My pleasure. Thank you again. That's Arma Akutate, CEO of Plenty. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and listen to the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.